I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broken Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. This is Summer. And this is Felina. Um, momentarily, we'll call my friend Alicia, who is a genius. But um, before we do that, uh, Felina wanted me to give some insight for our listeners. Um, some insight into what's going on right now. Um as everyone knows, the government has been shut down for the longest time the U.S. federal government has ever been shut down. And as, as a result, of course, there's furloughs, there's families who are going without pay, and there's also people who are going to be going without food. Um, the USDA has issued a statement that they are funded through the end of February, um, but because of the way government funding allocations work, what that actually means is those allocations are based on the number of open cases by a certain deadline, which is significantly ahead of time. And it's in fact the 15th or today was that fun- that deadline. And if it's not open, it does by, you know, if it wasn't open by the end of business today, then it doesn't count for the numbers for the funding allocation and there's no guarantee that anybody over that you know outside of that is going to get any funding so and then after that point even after february if the federal government remains closed then there may not be any funds at all after that either um there so i mean people are worried about going without food um i've heard from social workers, which I don't talk about it much on the air because I don't want anybody to ever try to make allegations that what I say represents any of my employers or anything like that, but I am a social worker. That is my primary job. Um, And I've heard from social workers from all over. They're all putting in extra hours, trying to find resources for their clients because this is creating such a problem. We've got, you know, already food banks are already stretched thin and now we've got additional demand on them because we have families who aren't getting um, the same income that they had and now also maybe not getting their SNAP benefits. And if they stop getting their SNAP benefits, where are they going to go? I know there were state workers who work SNAP in Oklahoma who have been putting in overtime uh, the last several days just to make sure that qualif- all qualifying cases were opened by the deadline to make sure that people get to eat. Um, and when I say putting in overtime, and they kept the offices open until 8, 8 p.m. on um, Friday and Monday, and they were open all day long on Saturday and Sunday. And that is remarkable because I have talked to people who have lived, who have worked in that department for 30 years who have never seen them pay overtime and they were begging people to come in and and lots and lots of people gave their time to do that because social workers everywhere are genuinely concerned that this um that people aren't going to be able to eat you know we're already seeing you know we're already seeing employees missing their paychecks and i mean social workers are superheroes but they should never be in the position of having to literally reduce the body count of a government shutdown, particularly one that is caused simply by a fucking tantrum by an overgrown toddler for his vanity project 
that is nothing but a monument to his ego because nobody who has the sense God gave a fucking mule believes that it's going to do a goddamn thing about people crossing the border. It's illogical and irrational. And I don't believe for a second anybody with any fucking sense actually believes that. But the fact that human lives are being treated as expendable right now is horrific and it needs to stop. And during a conversation, I actually, <laughs> about this, I actually um, saw someone post on online about um, their statement was people shouldn't get food stamps because if you don't learn how to struggle, you won't appreciate the nicer things in life. And my very measured response to that is if you think people should starve so that they can be more grateful, go fuck yourself. And I hope you're the only one that does do that because others shouldn't fuck you and reward you for being an awful human being. So... On that note, let's call Alicia. Hello? Alicia? Hi! Hi, this is Summer. And this Hi, is Summer. Selena. <laughs> this is Selena with a mouthful of food. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, we're having a snack. Cause... <laughs> You're totally good. <laughs> How are you doing? I am doing good. Preston's a little mad at me because I filled the entire house basically with plaster dust. Was a little bit of an accident, but it's okay. <laughs> what were you doing with plaster dust? Well, I actually just posted a video of it. Oh, um, I'm going to have to go watch it now. <laughs> yeah, my little... I'm really liking these time-lapse videos. Um, yeah, I, uh, I made a mold uh, mm-hmm. back in November of my friend JP's face. Okay. So that I could make him this um jaw labre sort of uh i guess i don't even know if it would be considered jewelry i guess jewelry maybe a partial mask um and so i was pouring the positive for that and uh yeah i had to clean up the plaster positive with my dremel and it made a big big mess But now, now I'm all good. Now I can start, okay, you know, good. putting together this uh, this piece. I'm super excited. <laughs> okay, so obviously Alicia is an artist. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so can you can you kind of tell us a little of your background and what you work with? Because she like works with every medium. I swear that <laughs> possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, we're good. <laughs> guys on speaker. Okay. Yeah, you're on speaker because that's the only way we can all talk to you. <laughs> oh, right. um, so I got my bachelor's from the University of Oklahoma, and uh, that was in uh, contemporary sculpture and printmaking. So which I, I do a lot of sculpture with my work. Now, uh, when did you graduate? When? Yeah. Oh my God! When did I graduate? <laughs> um. I mean, uh, fuck. Ugh. No, now I've got to look it up. 2014. That's what I Okay. Well, I have a friend who graduated from uh, the arts program at OU and does sculpture. Oh, really? And, uh, but it was like in 2006 or something. Oh. So I was she just was curious. She was still a baby then. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your friend's name if they hung around the department? 
Well, she teaches at Dartmouth now. I mean, oh, she's okay. been there for years. Um, oh. But her name's Brooke Mullins. Oh, fancy. Yeah, but anyway, just was curious to make a possible connection. <laughs> it's really funny because um, I got my bachelor's. My primary focus was contemporary sculpture, but I don't think I ever, like, like, I only made one sculpture that I was like, this. And everything <laughs> else was really just me learning these, like, techniques and processes. Um that I was like, well, this is fun, but I don't know what to do with them. And um, it wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until, like, maybe my uh, my second semester of uh, grad school that I was like, you know, <laughs> my, my first semester, they were like, quit doing printmaking, because I do woodblock relief printing primarily. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know, fucking, like, relax on that and try something else. And I almost had a heart attack, but I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to them. And I'm really glad I did, um, because then, yeah, I was like, okay, what other skills do I have? And um, now my my practice is pretty multidisciplinary, because I combine sculpture, printmaking, uh, textiles, uh, video and photography, mm-hmm. like, everything. So. That's awesome. I like the multimedia arts. I mean, that's right. That's really what I, interesting. I loved about your show. Was that last year? Time get time gets away from me. Um, was yeah, that was she? Fun. She had not only her um, her pieces hung mm-hmm. and labeled, and then of course she did a story about one of them and explained the backstory. So there was storytelling, and there was also a video piece uh, about one of them, and there was a video. What was the there was a video that incorporated some of the pieces too so i i really liked that it was very uh, yeah it just felt um, like there's more depth than when you just go to a gallery and see pieces on display mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it was um the the piece i guess the main piece that was a part of that um little solo exhibition i had in norman at a uh, resonator right. oh um, i'm playing there next month or this month (laughs) yeah it's a great space um i mean i i love curtis i love everybody down there you know these are people i got my bachelor's with and that i studied with um so you know i've got a big big place in my heart for norman but um the piece that i had finished literally the week before (laughs) that install was Erendina, uh, which was on display at uh, Pulse Miami, at Pulse Play. And um, that piece, uh, I don't know, it's weird. Everybody, Everybody's like, the stories are what's important. More stories, more stories. And so I was like, okay. And then I made a video piece with the story being told, but no one can understand it because <laughs> it's an indigenous language. Um, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I, I remember telling you, because uh, we had talked about it, um, somebody had told me that, because I, I figured I would tell them, like, basically the translated version, uh, and I would, like, maybe say it a couple of times for a couple groups of people, but somebody told me that after I'd gone to lunch or something and come back, that uh, people who were there for the first time I told the story when new people were coming in, they were, like, going up to them and, and being like, hey, do you want to know what she's saying? <laughs> so you created a whole oral tradition right there. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And um, 
That was amazing. That was really awesome. And it was it was funny because like um, the story uh, of Edna and Dina, she was a Puerto Pecho warrior princess. Uh, she like killed a conquistador and took his horse. She's the first to kneel on her horseback. She was a total badass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, um, I had never heard uh, Puerto Pecho, uh, which is. Um, the indigenous language and the people of Michoacan, I'd never heard it before, mm-hmm. but my father's family is from Jalisco, Guanajuato, Michoacan, and so I'm likely, I have this in me, mm-hmm. and uh, the first time, like, the woman that I worked with, Berenice, um, when she uh, sent me the audio of her telling the story, I just was sobbing. I was just ugly Aww. crying into it. Yeah, it was just such an emotional experience to just hear those words and to hear um, to hear her story in her language, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very powerful. And it was funny, too, because while we were editing the video together, um, naturally, you know, when you're editing, you have to listen to things over and over and over and over and over again. Uh-huh. And you can... Uh, it was weird because then I started like picking up <laughs> the Puerto Pecha. Like, cool. <laughs> I could tell like uh, what part of the story it was by how she was speaking, and also if she would drop a name of mm-hmm. a character or somebody, some historical figure. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I was like, uh, oh, Harani, you know, Ceci Han, Yamanducha. Like, I was like, <laughs> like picking it up as I was listening to it. So I was like, mm-hmm. well, that's kind of ideal, right? That's kind that's of cool. how it should be. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I like how your art, um, you explore identity a lot in your art or scene, too. <laughs> yes. So, can- and can we can we talk about the Medusa <laughs> post you oh, made? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> explain your Medusa theory because this was pretty, and you posted yeah. something somewhere. Yeah. It, it, it started on her Facebook, and it was a question about Medusa. And yeah, it's, I have been thinking about this for like probably two weeks now. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a really good conversation, and. Um... I don't know, I like starting conversations like that on my Facebook because I think I'm I'm friends with some really brilliant people and I love hearing like their takes on things and their perspectives and I really like, you know, what you had had to say Summer and everything like that. But um, basically, I was thinking about, um, and this is where this all started because I was thinking about doing this new piece, um, which I'm hopefully going to do mm-hmm. this year fingers crossed um but in it what I wanted to be doing was um dressing myself as a deer essentially Mm -hmm. um this sort of deer woman hybrid and um so I was looking at uh I was reading Rebecca Solnit and like um her writings about uh the deer and its representation of like all of nature, like almost the totality of nature. Um, like there's very, uh, if you see like a woodland creature, like a raccoon or something like that, you're like, oh, that's, that's, they belong in nature, but there's very few things that actually look like a forest. Uh-huh. And when you see, when you see like deer antlers, like you're seeing an animal that looks like a tree. And so she was basically positing that this is why um, the buck has always been this sort of 
combination of nature, basically. And um, she was also writing about... Um, Oh my gosh, I have ADD, sorry. <laughs> she was, she was also writing about, yeah, she was also writing about um, the, like, deer crossing sign, like, um, it being a great metaphor for um, the sort of clashing of nature versus culture. Okay. Um, and, like, and I had already been working, like, my entire thesis um, was about sort of uh, the indigenous woman's body as a metaphor for the new world. Mm-hmm. And how do we turn that that colonialist, that imperialist narrative on its head? Okay. Um, so, like, if you're trying to condense the entirety of nature into a woman, and you're wanting her to be beautiful, virginal, you know, rapeable, plunderable, um, you know, pregnable, mm-hmm. um, this is this is a way to sort of um, make the environment seem less scary. But if we think about if we think about like the sort of romantic idea of like the sublime of like a landscape that's so large and so vast it's hostile to our mental faculties it's incomprehensible mm-hmm. and terrifying and so I was really interested in this idea of turning again turning that narrative on its head and being like, okay, well, if the indigenous woman's body is going to be your metaphor for the new world, then the land is terrifying and these women are terrifying. And that was sort of the impetus for my entire thesis. Mm-hmm. But, um, and so then that comes back around, or if we say that a woman is supposed to represent, an indigenous woman is supposed to represent the land, um, then... I was just reading like a buck as a metaphor for the wilderness and was just like, well, there you go. That's, this is the intersection right here. Um, besides the fact that, um, Melissa K. Nelson, this writer who I adore, um, wrote this really great essay about like uh, biophilic sort of narratives and indigenous, um, societies and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like, I mean, the Mayans have stories about women eating fruit and becoming pregnant um, the Anishinaabe have stories of, like, women, uh, you know, squatting to pee and the wind blowing between her legs and her getting pregnant. So, like, um, the woman is sort of the meeting place, the contact zone between the human and more than human, the human and the nature. And so then that image became the deer woman, basically. Okay. Those, these two ideas just merged all together in my mind. Like I said, I have ADD, so, (laughs) like, all I'm doing all day is just, like, bridging things. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, but then I was like, well, what am I doing, though? And you had said, you had said before, Summer, that you had been, I don't know if you were speaking to an elder or something like that, but you were basically like, okay, like, but uh, you're, the Choctaw people, they have a deer woman, and... Why, why does she have antlers? Right. It's my, right. My friend, she's a professor and she teaches um, some native indigenous studies classes and she was using some deer woman stories. And my question was, well, why have we always depicted deer woman with antlers? Because mm-hmm. we've had enough knowledge of nature to understand that the female deer do not have antlers. So that mm-hmm. had to be a deliberate choice. 
why? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I still don't have an answer to the why exactly, but the, so my fear is that yeah, my which comes comes back to the Medusa thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my theory, um, and it's you know my on my mother's side I'm Sicilian, and so you know the Medusa is on the Sicilian flag. The Medusa image has always been, you know, a big part of my life and my personal history and everything. So it was, it was maybe, maybe a little uh, Eurocentric of me, but I sort of looked at the image of a dear woman, mm-hmm. and I saw Medusa. Okay. I saw um, because if we can allow that in the West. Um, in European societies, a snake often represented a phallus, right? Okay. Um, and, you know, we look into Medusa's origin story that she was a woman that was raped. Mm-hmm. And when she was raped after her assault, she was, her hair turned to serpents. Um, you know, she could turn a man to stone with her gaze. Um, to me, when I when I thought about all of that, and it was a little Freudian too, probably. Mm-hmm. But when I thought about all of that, I was like, "What is what is Medusa then? But a woman in drag, okay. but a woman who was assaulted and literally is um, defeminized herself um, as a means for protection." Um, because it never sat right with me that she was, this happened to her as a, as a punishment. Right. Um, especially since, um, oh my gosh, what was her name? Uh, one of the goddesses, one of the virgin goddesses, um, for her feast day, they would like, I don't know, take all of the like predators of the town and they would just stone them. And that was something the Greeks did on her holiday. So, like, Oh, the really? animal stoning of the stoning of the local pedophiles. Is that Artemis? And so, <laughs> so like, um, there was this culture. It seemed like, at least partially, mm-hmm. in respect to these goddesses, of um, punishing men for doing things like this. And so it never sat right with me that she was punished. Um, by being given this power and by being given um, these snakes. So she was and given so, a weapon, not a curse. Exactly. It's a weapon. It's, I think I remember a, seeing this on your feed or something. Probably, because we talked about it for quite a while. Yeah, and I loved this theory. I, I really love it because, yeah, I mean, being able to stop someone, it, it, is, a, it is a weapon. Being able to protect, it's a protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a defense. Right. Yeah. Right, and so she and she'd also talked about the defeminizing, which is something a lot of uh, a lot of women do mm-hmm. um, once when they survive assault. Is mm-hmm. they do whatever our own perception uh, is of feminism of feminine. A lot mm-hmm. of us will try to change that and because we on... feel like it's going to protect us. It doesn't. It's irrational. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's just an innate thing that we do. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, just speaking from my own personal experience, I take on. I, I have reflected on the fact that I have taken on male traits consciously to, like, you know, yeah. help protect myself as a defense. I make sure I have a firm handshake and things like mm-hmm. silly yeah. things like that because. I want to fit into a man's world and see it as a, a self-preservation and protection and, right. and defense. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And even, like, um, I sort of, like, accidentally, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not an entomologist, uh, entomologist or anything like that, but I sort of realized that also Medusa, Medusa means guardian. Oh. And med, uh, that sort of prefix, is used in medicine. Right. And it means to take appropriate measures. And I was just thinking about that, to take appropriate measures, like to do what needs to be done. And, um, I mean, her snakes are the snakes that are on the medical staff. Oh, that's true. I thought that was... mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so it was all of that. And then, yeah, coming back to the deer woman, I was like, I was like, this is a woman in drag. This is, uh, this is a woman who is trying can you sort of explain what Dear Woman does in the in the oh, story yeah. for those who um, don't know this? <laughs> no, definitely. So, um, well, like we didn't, and I, I, I always I try to be very mindful and very careful because I do know people do have Dear Woman stories. To my knowledge, the mm-hmm. um, Nawas, the Purapechas, the Chichimecas, mm-hmm. the people that I'm likely to send from, to my knowledge, they do not have a Dear Woman story. So yeah. I want to be depicted myself as Frida Kahlo oh, in my right. music videos. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge oh. fan. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. Yes. Um, but, um, oh my gosh, what was... I'm sorry, I totally threw you off. You just... No, you're totally you mentioned I, my favorite I, I lady, so... <laughs> in Dear Woman oh, Stories. Yeah, um, yeah so does. in the piece that I'm hopefully going to be doing uh, this summer... Mm-hmm. In the piece, um, I'm going to be dressing myself as a dear woman, mm-hmm. and I want to be carrying a fawn, and I'm going to be whispering to the fawn the entire time, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you, because sort of what, what started this was um, the realization that I had this past year that um, being told I don't believe you um, is almost as traumatizing as the actual event. Yeah. Yeah. The actual assault. Yeah. Um, being called so, a liar essentially is not. Yeah. It's not a, a good feeling, ever. No. <laughs> and it's. I mean, and like trust is a survival tool. Right. You know, like if people don't believe you, if you're untrustworthy, then you don't have. You're alienated from a community. Yes. And so it's, it's yes. extremely alienating, it's extremely violent, and uh, I mean, you know, what we saw with um, uh, the Kavanaugh hearing and everything mm-hmm. like that, like, um, that was that was just very emotional to all survivors, I'm certain, like, yeah. sort of watching this woman being taken to task like she was for um, something horrible that was done to her, but, um, in the video, I'm going to be dressed as this dear woman carrying the spawn, walking down a road, and behind me is going to be walking a wolf. So. <laughs> and what is the wolf representative of? Men? So, 
Okay. No, no. So uh, it's funny because I also like I work with animals a lot in my work, and I think every time I do, I'm really trying to sort of deconstruct um, sort of societal perceptions of these animals. And so, what represents man in the video is actually the road, um, because walking on the side of a road or on a road is that is imminent that is an imminent danger if you're a deer mm-hmm. if you're a person um so the the fawn obviously represents the inner child um the uh part of you that needs to be consoled after something like that the deer woman then represents um how a survivor relates to her body after something like that happens and then the wolf the wolf and the antlers are what have a relationship in the video so the antlers that i'm making aren't just going to be any antlers they're going to be shedding their velvets they're going to be bloody and there's going to be splash hanging off of them and um i'm trying to call attention to the life cycle of the antlers they're deciduous after they shed their velvet they harden and then they eventually fall off and so in uh, Mexican culture, in Huichol culture in particular, the Huichol people believe that um, the, the, their deer, their blue deer, um, its antlers hold back the storms. They hold back the clashing cloud gates is the, the phrase that I've heard most. Um, and so I really want to get a shot of the wolf walking behind me between these like bloody antlers because what I'm sort of making a reciprocal threat to the road I'm saying if I'm if I'm sort of being merciful right now if I'm just consoling myself just figuring out how to relate to myself after something violent and terrible just happened to me, then what I'm holding back for you very briefly is everything survivors are allowed to feel. Um, Power, anger, revenge. Um, You know, they tell us, oh, forgive and forget. Like, you have to forgive. That's the only way to recover from trauma. When the fact of the matter is, Um, forgiving is a way of recovering from trauma, but it's not the only way. Amen. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times, I feel like a lot of times we, people talk about forgiving when what they're really saying is repress it. Don't deal with, they don't want you to have these emotions about it. So they just want you to hide it. Yeah. Yes. And I believe, like, just as an aside to that, I believe it was even, um, didn't the Choctaw practice um, victim justice, I believe is what, like, anthropologists call it, which is basically, like, if something happened, if a woman was, like, raped, um, the tribe would get together, they would grab her assailant, bring her assailant to her, and then whatever she said would bring justice brought justice so if the woman was like i just want him to apologize he would have to apologize if she said i want his balls cut off and i want to wear a necklace out of them then they would cut his balls off and make it yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 
ways, I feel like these pieces, my work, is coming from that sort of ethos of um, how how would we have done this? Mm-hmm. And so I guess um, with the piece, I'm sort of saying um, we're recuperating, and while we are, you're safe for now. Mm-hmm. So I like it. I love this. I particularly like and I don't think I've ever really had somebody verbalize that you know forgiveness is repression and or can be repression and is not the only way to heal from trauma Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, because I get told a lot well you need to just forgive and let that go just forgive for yourself even if they don't deserve forgiveness which which sometimes is you know and and like forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean forgetting and forgiveness uh, doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you are uh, going to, uh, I mean, you can forgive and uh, still be angry at the same time. I yeah. think there's a way to, you know, let something be in the past, but uh, still uh, be processing that trauma yeah. in, in other ways. And I think it looks different for everybody. And yeah. People need to stop telling others how to handle their own trauma. Yeah. If you don't want to be a part of their healing process, then you can go the fuck away. Right. But uh, you don't need to be judging other people for how they're handling their shit. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you know, um, even if, I mean, this is something that I've also learned in the last few years, even if you can reconcile with yourself what happened to you um your body still remembers it Mm -hmm. and your body remembers it in a way that it doesn't matter if mentally you've forgiven them or not yeah you're going to have panic attacks yeah oh yeah absolutely Yeah, I recently uh, ran into, uh, for the first time, saw, and I'm sorry to make this about me now, but I just <laughs> want to give a real-life example of what we're talking about. Um, you know, I had uh, broken up with an abusive boyfriend in April of last year, and I saw him, I ran into him for the first time in November, and it was crazy how I just went, my mental state, like, I immediately went back to, like, a state of panic upon... Uh, seeing him and that didn't mean that I hadn't dealt with a lot of it yeah of course there's still some scars uh, but you know my my initial reaction of fear and anxiety and going back to that same place does not mean that I haven't uh, at least on some level dealt with and and worked on some of the trauma that that had caused me so uh, yeah I I, uh, I understand what you're saying and I appreciate it very much <laughs> <laughs> So, can you tell us about your experience with the DNA testing? Because Felina is interested in possibly doing one um, to locate relatives. So, can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, my dad's from uh, San Luis Potosi, Mexico, and I'm interested in tracking down some some relatives in my, my Mexican yeah. heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, well, from I, I did my DNA test um, just because, like, I always knew I was like okay like just from the way my father was described to me it's like I know he's he I don't know the indigeneity in Mexico it's like 90% of the population has some indigenous heritage mm-hmm. uh, usually half I think 60% is mestizo mm-hmm. and then 10% is European and 30% is 100% indigenous okay. um so I did my DNA test and 
I was like, confirmed, dad was a mestizo, so. <laughs> yeah, my dad's a mestizo from, from what I understand. My grandfather was from Spain and my grandmother was an Aztec Indian. So, yeah, yeah I'm a mestizo on my dad's side from, from what I know. Yeah, um, yeah, that sounds about right. It's usually how that goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you, they'll give you your if you go through ancestry they'll give you your communities your genetic communities which was super super helpful for me because i knew my father grew up in guadalajara i knew that's where he left but i didn't really know anything past that point yeah um, that's that's really interesting my dad left from san luis potosi uh around in the 70s but uh his sisters all lived in guadalajara and i still have family in guadalajara yeah interesting um, that's dope. <laughs> lots of tequila, lots of mariachis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I always say, like, the, everything you think Mexico is, is just Jalisco. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. I'm just, like, finding it fascinating <laughs> that you have a similar background. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, so my genetic communities came up, and it showed me, it basically confirmed what I already knew. Um, that I was a castiza, I was a quarter, um, and that, uh, yeah, my genetic communities were in Michoacan, Jalisco, and Guanajuato. So that was, that was super, super helpful. Um, but if you, do you know, do you know your, like, father's family I, I mean, the only living relative that I know of is an uncle, or I guess, well, I, my dad's three brothers live in the United States, but his, I think he's got one sister that's still alive that lives in the Guadalajara area, but my cousin, it's like one of his sister's sons, is our main contact with um, our family, our Mexican family uh, that still lives in, in Mexico. And that's really it. Um, because if you have, because I didn't, I didn't even, my mom told me my father's name was Pedro Velasquez, and his name is Pedro Valdez, so I didn't even have his name, basically, my entire life. Oh, wow. Um, but if you have, if you have a name, um, if you can trace your ancestry back as far as you can, um, the Indigenous Cultures Institute in Texas, um, they did, I'm not sure if they still do, but they did have a program where if they would, you would give them basically your lineage, and they would go through the Spanish encomienda system. Are you familiar with that system? No. So uh, the Spanish obviously didn't keep rolls, um, which sucks for us in a lot of ways. But they did keep slaves. They kept a lot of slaves. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, as as you do when you're colonizing fuckhead. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, European they had this thing um, where they were basically the encomienda was that they would put uh, X amount of Indians air quotes in the care of a conquistador basically they would be like oh here is some land for you to build your you know beautiful home on and here is like 40 Indians um <laughs> So, um, what the ICI in Texas was doing for a while was, again, if you, if you were like, oh, my, my family's name is Valadez or something like that, they would.
would go back in the records and they'd be like, oh, um, the Conquistador Valdez was given 40 Indians from uh, Michoacan, you are Pura Facha. Or, um, you know, if you're, uh, my family name is Flores, oh, well, the Conquistador Flores was given um, 60 Indians from uh, Oaxaca, you know, so on and so forth. Interesting. Yeah, I'm Rivera, so... (laughs) What they were doing is basically triangulating, um, yeah, people's heritage, essentially. Because, you know, if you're lucky enough to still have relatives that are on, like, um, ejidos and stuff like that, which obviously very few of us are, Mexico doesn't like giving land to Indians to just live <laughs> on. <laughs> so... Well, that's interesting. You and I, I'd like to talk with you after the podcast, uh, just uh, with some questions, if you don't mind, because I'd kind of like to dig into this a little more. Yeah, no, definitely. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, like, obviously, I don't have my family traced back that far, so the genetic communities were what was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. went through 23andMe? I went through Ancestry. Oh, Ancestry. Okay. Yeah, and, and, you know, I was able to find uh, a cousin, um, which was incredible. Um, she was like, oh, my God, we had no idea you existed. And I was like, imagine. See, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know I have a shitload of cousins in uh, the Guadalajara area uh, in Mexico <laughs> City. I know I do. Um, I just, my dad is, I, I don't speak Spanish, and my dad is just not great at like maintain like he talks to my one cousin and like he doesn't I've been asking him I'm like can you find out who else we're related to there and like he just won't do it and I'm like okay and I and I but I imagine I know my cousins are my age and so they probably speak English right uh, you know because they see the value in being bilingual versus as Americans (laughs) here who think everybody should bend to our whim so yeah (laughs) so well that's really interesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) well uh what else do you have going on where can you be found where's your art and what's your social media and all that because i want to look you up and other people as well um, you can find me my website is aliciasmith.work and uh, my Instagram, I post mostly on Instagram. Ditto. Okay. Unless have a really long conversation, and then I'll post it on Facebook. <laughs> um, yeah, good conversations. Um, <laughs> but I'm Alicia Smith Art on Instagram. So, yeah. And um, you asked what else I was working on? Yes. Um, so... Right now, what I got in a bunch of trouble this morning <laughs> for making a mess <laughs> part, um, is uh, another piece that I'm working on that I don't I don't know if I'm gonna manage to get it finished this year. It might be a next year piece because it's uh, really really involved. Um, because I'm I'm gonna have to make two sets of regalia for it. But basically, um, in the piece, what you're gonna see in the video is. Um, me and my friend uh, JP uh, dressed as Shochi Quetzal and Shochi Bidi and every article of clothing and jewelry that we're wearing is going to double as a hummingbird feeder and I, I want to feed 
Which <laughs> I just want to see them with hummingbirds chasing them. <laughs> <laughs> like, as we're, we're, we haven't even sat down and the birds are like, hey, slow down. We're trying to, trying to drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it's sort of um, that piece. That piece, I'm, I'm like, I'm still like, I don't know, I feel like every day I'm uncovering something else because Shoshi Ketzel and Shoshi Pili are um, sort of our two spirit. Uh, I'm not going to call them deities, or two-spirit essences, we'll say, um, the two-spirit manifestation of, um, you know, the great spirit of Teot. Um, and so, I don't know, I really wanted to do something to honor that and um, honor two-spirit medicine. And, um, and that led into a really long conversation with um, some of my friends about what two-spirit medicine is. Um, cause I know like you all probably know, like, I think this past year was the first year that they allowed, um, people to dance in the categories of the gender they identify as at like the gathering of nations. Mm-hmm. Um, that was huge. Uh, at, um, when I went to standing rock two spirit camp was, you know, right in the center of, uh, the camp and everybody was making such a big deal. Like, I saw so many elders, so many Two-Spirit elders that were just sobbing. They couldn't believe that, um, that yeah, Two-Spirits were being traded so essential to the ceremony of the place. And, um, and so with all of that, got into a discussion about what Two-Spirit medicine is, and, um, one of my friends was like, oh, like an elder told me two-spirit medicine is clown medicine. And I just, uh, it, that just rubbed me the wrong way. What does that I, mean? Like, clown medicine. Clown medicine. I guess like, I don't know if he was talking to a Hopi elder. Like, ooh, like, I Which I mean, they don't have the concept of two-spirit. Two-spirit, the, the phrase two-spirit for listeners who don't know, uh, originates from a sacred teaching with the Anishinaabe people who believe that um uh whereas in western culture we talk about like being gay or whatever is some as an orientation they believe you have both that two-spirit people have both masculine and feminine spirits they literally have two spirits within their body and they have specific medicine and responsibilities and roles and things um so it's it's a very special right and and it's more than just an identity like so mm-hmm. when she's talking about medicine yeah. she's it's really about medicine ways and they have particular duties and, and healing ways that that's really that awesome use. that's yeah. why i was like what does he mean clown medicine what does that mean yeah. <laughs> i guess i guess um like if i'm thinking about uh clowns in the context of like the hopi people like i'm thinking about like um i don't know like uh the person who makes you laugh or the person who um, makes fun of how uh, people act. Right, because um, they did have particular roles, right, with, with yeah, clowning and, in their culture. And so I don't, I don't think that the elder meant it offensively or anything like that, but it still kind of rubbed me a little weird because I was like, you know, I could see somebody who is indigenous and is a drag queen having clown medicine. Like, I would call being a drag queen. <laughs> 
uh, medicine. Okay, <laughs> I, I see like, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I was sense. like, but I don't think I wouldn't be comfortable calling. We call our um, uh, M to F uh, trans women. Um, we called them Shuchiwan. It means flower bearer, and it's because they carried our most sacred flowers. They carried our most sacred plants in ceremony, which was um, our peyote, um, our teonanakot, which is uh, mushrooms, mm-hmm. um, snake flower, morning glories, um, all of those plants that were, you know, our ethnogens. They're very, very essential to a very specific type of ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's why, if you see us, if you see the statue of Shochipuli, okay, I feel like, but um, it's uh, you see, he, his name means flower prince, and he is like sitting with his legs crossed and he's reclining back. He has a huge smile on his face, and he's wearing this really big headdress, and all over his body is covered in um, these plants, in these sacred plants, mm-hmm. and so I was thinking about basically who we were to mm-hmm. ceremony which was the carriers of this very 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 sacred medicine okay. um who we were and who we are today so shochuan is uh just one of our genders as i explained um i mean we had we had so many names for okay. gay women gay men trans men trans women we had so many words for those but shochuan now, if you go to Nawa communities in Mexico, mm-hmm. they call trans women uh, machoch, which means flower hand, and it's used as a slur. Oh. Yeah. And, um, and there's, like, communities, obviously, where two-spirit people are still held very sacred. Again, mm-hmm. particularly M to F uh, trans women. Okay. Um, and they're called mouches. And so I was just thinking about all of those things, thinking about those elders, those two-spirit elders that were crying at Standing Rock, thinking about um, clown medicine, (laughs) thinking about about our roles and ceremonies before colonizer came and what our situation is like now. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was just thinking like, can medicine change? over time mm-hmm. can um because if you think about what these sort of representations are and obviously the aztecs made a lot a lot of art and a lot of sculpture so i'm speaking from that place okay. but our iconography basically for all of these manifestations of the great spirit um we're also a record of the history of those things and a record of time. And so I was like, so according to our tradition, if I take that medicine would change over time with the history of whatever manifestation it is. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was like, what if two spirit medicine now also includes um, returning medicine? medicine for coming back after being you know cast aside after being pushed away mm-hmm. and um, i'm getting a little choked up <laughs> <laughs> and um 
And as I was thinking about that, the only person I could think of was my friend, JP, mm-hmm. who um, has been a huge inspiration to me. Um, he was the person that I went with the first time I went to Mexico. And so in a lot of ways, this piece is also to honor him because he brought me back. Oh, I see. And, um, and so, yeah, so in the piece, it's really a celebration of what our roles were what our roles are now Mm -hmm. and having these hummingbirds, these messengers of Teot, of the great spirit, Mm -hmm. um, coming back and forth from us, drinking from us is sort of, um, my way of saying like, we're here now. Okay. Yeah. And so that's what the pieces I'm, I, I'm like sort of condensing it by just being like, Oh, it's my celebration of two spiritness of queerness of Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. But, um, really what that piece is going to be whatever I can get it done it's going to take a long time to make everything (laughs) so when will you be showing this when's your next showing or do you have anything on display right now I um and my next exhibition I'm in Untitled in San Francisco the Untitled Art Fair and uh Teo Mama is going to be showing there and that's uh the piece that um is probably my favorite piece that I've done so far and it's uh, me kneeling in a lake with a hawk eating off of my back (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome do you have anything and you're here in Norman right no No, okay yeah, but I, I originally am from Oklahoma. Yeah, I, so. I was looking you up on Instagram as we were chatting, and mm-hmm. we've got some similar uh, friends and followers, so I was curious. Uh, yeah, uh, but we'll have to catch up with you. Please send us uh, a link to uh, where everything can be found, and sure. we will yeah, we'll put, it put it on your podcast episode when we post it. Yeah, definitely. And do you mind if I give Felina your number so you guys can chat about <laughs> Thing. Yeah, no, of course, of course. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing yeah. this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Do you have a good day? Bye. Bye-bye. You can contact the podcast at BrokeBrokenPodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found on Twitter at BrokeBrokenShow, on Instagram and Facebook at BrokeBrokenPodcast.